This evening I'd like to <coughs> talk about visibility and invisibility. Both visibility and invisibility tend to be outer reflections of our own inner vision. Through our visibility or invisibility in our lives and in our world, we tend to express our most deeply held beliefs about who we are. When we are visible to the world, we are open, we are without disguises, we're seeable, and we're accessible. <coughs> when we're invisible in our lives and in our world, we tend to put much effort into concealing ourselves through disguise and camouflage, putting much effort into remaining unseen, remaining unnoticed, and remaining inaccessible. It is true that to be visible in our world takes an immense amount of courage. It takes a great deal of trust and integrity. To be invisible too often means to live with a great deal of fear and the constant struggle to camouflage our presence in the world to others and to ourselves. Historically, the invisible in our world have always been the oppressed, the powerless, and the minorities who live in the shadows of our world and in the shadows of life, often thrust into those shadows without any choice, often thrust into those shadows without any avenues, any easy avenues to become visible. And their language is so often the language of silence, remaining unheard and unseen. Feel in recent decades we are witnessing the transition that women are making from invisibility to visibility. It's a transition which has been painful, even excruciating at times. It's a transition which has involved so much exploration and questioning of beliefs and roles, of fears and of vision. And to make that transition for many women from invisibility to visibility, they've been deeply challenged within themselves to look at all of the assumptions that they carry, that we carry, about what is right, about who we are, about the beliefs that we can carry or feel imposed upon us. In that transition that women have made, there's probably no single structure in our world that has remained untouched by it. No social structure, no religious structure, no structure of authority that hasn't been touched and influenced and challenged in some way by the transitions that women have made. There's no political and no spiritual structure that has remained untouched. 
It's a process and a transition which at times has been painful. It has also been a process and a transition which has been deeply joyful because the outer visibility that has become apparent, the transition to visibility that has been made, is a reflection, simply of a reflection of profound inner transformations that have taken place within so many women, where they move into light, where they move into light rather than remaining or being stuck within the shadows which have been for too long their home. The visibility that so many women are manifesting have been able to manifest is an expression of their reclaiming of inner authority, is an expression of learning to trust in their own presence and in their own potential. And as an expression of that trust, feeling enabled to and and empowered to manifest and to explore their own resources, their own capacities, their own potential in life. In reclaiming inner authority too, there is the setting aside of a vision which has been too long limited, in which we may have seen ourselves as being ineffective, ineffective and powerless. It is setting aside that vision of powerlessness, of limitation, of ineffectiveness that enables us to be a conscious and an effective and a creative participant in the wheel of our own lives and in the creation of our own world. It's not only, it is not just a reclaiming of social or political or economic freedom, that true transition to visibility is also a reclaiming of our own spiritual heritage, which is freedom. It is not to say that that transition to visibility is a process which is finished, that all that is to be done has been done, and we can all now retire. The outer visibility that we see around us of so many women challenges us to explore the dimensions and the dynamics of our own need for invisibility. It challenges us to explore our own shadows and the ways in which we seek invisibility, to ask ourselves, perhaps, why visibility comes with such difficulty to us why we may find ourselves seeking shadows in our own lives so that we can remain an unseen and unheard tapestry in our own world and in our own being. Invisibility is not always imposed. It is all too true that at many times in our culture, at many times in our society, visibility has spelt danger, has been even life-threatening that it is not possible to be visible. But if we look within our own lives, we may be now in a different situation. We may still find ourselves fearing to be really present and to be really visible. 
at the same time finding that invisibility is indeed a painful burden to, to carry. There are many ways that we can maintain and promote invisibility. It can be through the actions that we do or that we leave undone, through the words that we speak or the words that we leave unspoken. The choices that we make in our lives can be expressions of deep inner trust in our own being. They can also be expressions of a lack of trust. There are so many subtle dimensions to invisibility, to wanting to remain, un uh, remain hidden and unnoticed. And it's certainly a burden the fear of visibility that can influence every area of our lives, even down to how we dress, how we may camouflage ourselves so that we remain unnoticed, how we place ourselves in relationship to other people, how we may find ourselves seeking the fringe, seeking the edge, seeking the shadows where we are least noticed within any group. <coughs> Our fear of visibility can also manifest in the roles and the professions and the identities that we do adopt. We may find ourselves attracted towards identities or, or roles or jobs that attract little attention. We may find ourselves choosing work or choosing roles which make little mark in the world or in which we are primarily a prop to someone else's more dominant role. And in doing that, we can remain incredibly hidden in our world, where we are only noticed if we make a mistake. Our speech is a major part of our own inner vision. If we seek invisibility, if we are afraid of visibility, we will find communication, articula articulation doesn't come easily to us. We may be known for our shyness, and it is very true in our world that almost everybody likes quiet people because it gives them so much room to make more noise. <laughs> we may be known for our agreeability, and again, everyone likes an agreeable person who doesn't challenge them. Through our silence, we may seem to affirm everybody else and to respect everybody else. And we receive through that a lot of posi positive feedback. And through our agreeability, we also become much less visible. However, it is also true that vocal invisibility creates an enormous amount of inner busyness. Because what do we do with all the things, all the words that we would have liked to say and felt that we couldn't? What do we do with all the responses we would have liked to express and felt that we couldn't? What do we do with all the things that we see and feel that we weren't able to express. We become filled with dialogues, speaking to ourselves endlessly. 
about all the things we should have been able to say. It's a debilitating way of being in our lives, one which undermines our own integrity. It's an enormous burden to be unable or feel unable to articulate what we see to be true. And it leads to so much inner frustration this desire to be unnoticed. We may have skills and possibilities of creativity that we would love to develop, that we feel in tune with, and yet despite our yearning to develop skills, directions, possibilities, again and again we may find ourselves turning our back on them because to do so would make us visible. To do so would attract attention and the feedback of others. We would have to deal then with what other people think about us or think of us. This desire, too, for invisibility can influence our own capacity to give and to offer ourselves to situations which are painful. How often have we seen situations where there's conflict or there's misunderstanding or there's pain and we find ourselves responding with compassion and empathy and feel that we have some understanding of what's going on and yet finding ourselves remaining silent and inactive because again to contribute, to express means to become visible in the eyes of others. There is a great paradox that can exist within ourselves. A paradox in which we desire invisibility, in which we desire not to be noticed, because to be noticed seems to invite the challenge of others and possibly the threat of others. And so invisibility is seen as a kind of protection. And yet we feel at the same time equally imprisoned by it by the very invisibility we adopt. It's like experiencing a kind of safe frustration or a quality of protective custody. It is like perhaps in the East, you know, where women are dressed or dress themselves in these shadows, you know, these sheets that cover them from top to bottom. And it is true that there is safety within the shador. You know, you know and notices you. I mean, every woman in, in Afghanistan, every woman in Iran looks exactly the same. I mean, you don't know who's under the tent. And it's true, there's a kind of safety in that. You know, there's no attention given. But it is also true that with, as long as you wear it, you don't feel the sun in your face, you don't feel the wind in your hair, and one thing it's really hard to run or dance or do anything else in a tent. <laughs> you know, you are really imprisoned by what seems to offer protection. And we see that the desire for invisibility is the desire for safety. And the desire for safety expresses our deepest fears that we then manifest in every area of our lives. We often have good reason to do that. Many women have good reason to do it. Their desire for invisibility has a very strong history that in the past, visibility may have been experienced as attracting pain and attracting punishment 
and attracting rejection. This is not uncommon. And so we've learned to equate visibility with pain, with being exposed, with being seeable, which has too often perhaps attracted judgment, negativity, or hostility. And then visibility may well also be equated with being powerless and ineffective and unable to change anything except ineffective, except in attracting the feedback of others, which may well have been negative and unable, or feeling unable to withstand that pain, learning to hide and to camouflage oneself and to fade into the shadows of silence. Or another way of becoming invisible is to adopt the strategy of submerging ourselves in the expectations of others, which can be very strong in our lives, which can be very powerful. The expectations of others of who and what we should be, how we should present, how we should behave. We submerge ourselves in those expectations through conformity, through submission. And in doing that, we don't attract very much attention. The attention we do attract is very affirming and very positive. The problem in that camouflage, in constantly conforming to the expectations of others, in molding ourselves to the expectations of others, is that we become invisible to ourselves. That we don't know who we are anymore, apart from the images and the identities we adopt apart from our conditioned reflexive responses to the expectations of others, that we are simply lost to ourselves. The identities are adopted because of the safety that they offer. But in adopting them, we are too often deafened inwardly deafened to listening to ourselves because the one thing that fear makes us do is to constantly be on guard and to be listening outwardly for anything that spells danger to us, anything that threatens us, anything that challenges us. And in the intensity of that outer listening, we are deafened inwardly. That difficulty in listening inwardly, that difficulty in knowing who we are apart from our images, apart from our roles, apart from the identities we've assumed, is to really exile ourselves from our own being. And it's to banish ourselves from any real authentic sense of vision. It's obvious that we can't speak about invisibility without also speaking about authority. As long as we are afraid, we extend an enormous amount of power to others. We give an immense amount of authority to other people, to situations, to circumstances in our lives. We only do that, only ever do that, when we are alienated from inner authority. And when we are afraid, it is true that authority 
always seems to be the possession and the territory of somebody else. When we feel powerless, the world seems to be filled with powerful people. When we feel ineffective, everywhere we look around us, we see all these incredibly capable human beings. And when we feel afraid, we surrender authority, not consciously and not willingly, but there doesn't seem any choice. And then we find ourselves obeying and submerging and conforming to authorities, whether we feel they are true and authentic or not. Because to not obey, to not conform, clearly means to become visible. And if we have or feel alienated from inner authority, then we are afraid of the price we might pay for that visibility. You might wonder what all this has to do with meditation. What all this has to do with sitting on a cushion, getting acquainted with our knees, and with our backs. When we sit here, we talk about nothing more than being present. Really, we've, the number of times we've mentioned the word present in this retreat, and being awake, you will probably never want to hear these words again. When somebody came and told me they heard me in their dreams saying, be awake. <laughs> I thought maybe it's a little much. You know? <laughs> maybe we've got to tone down a little. But anyway, once more, our practice is just about being awake. It is about insight and it is about freedom. And there is clearly a relationship between those three. When we are awake, there's a possibility of insight, and it is insight that makes us free. Sitting on a cushion does not make you free. <laughs> it is insight and understanding that liberates us. We are not learning here or practicing skills about how to become visible in the world. What we are really learning here is how to become visible to ourselves. We're not concerned with becoming visible to other people. We are concerned with becoming visible to ourselves. We pay attention inwardly, we see and we open. And eventually we come to a place where we have that willingness for that openness to be unconditional. That's not so in the beginning. We, are, we have a conditional opening. Certainly very happy to open to feelings of compassion and love and peace. Certain reluctance can be noticed about opening to feelings of anger and jealousy and resentment. But we learn eventually a kind of unconditional opening because we also learn actually that there's nothing else to do. You know, in the space of a week, 
you can try so many of the other avenues. You know, you've done the self-punishment bit. You know, you might have done the austerity bit. You've probably done the denial bit. You know, you might have done the, the indulgence story. You know, in a week, I mean, it's incredible how many records you can play. It's like the life of the Buddha condensed into five days. You know, it took him years to go through all those. <laughs> You know, you may find yourself managing to do it in five days. Eventually you come to a place where you clearly understand there's nowhere to go but where you are. There's nothing to do except to unconditionally open to what is there. It's, it's quite a relief, actually. As we do that, in a non-judgmental, in a compassionate way, we become clearer. We are not called upon to analyze what we see. We're not called upon to become busy what we see, with what we see. We're not called upon to create more images of who we should be or what we should become. We're not called upon to create some kind of goal that we should be reaching because nothing is changed through any of those reactions. What we are called upon is just to be present and to see with an unconditional welcome and unconditional open-heartedness what is really there. It is once said that this path is not difficult for those who have no preferences. (laughs) We might take that to heart. It becomes incredibly easy when we don't have preferences. It becomes incredibly light when we just let go of our prejudices that says one thing should be happening and another thing not. When we say one thing is spiritual and something else is not. When we let go of our prejudices and our preferences about, about what kind of feelings should arise and what should disappear, this path is a breeze. <laughs> you know, you're just there amidst this wonderful dance. And you don't feel so responsible for it all. What a relief. What a sigh of relief we can breathe. There is a transformation that happens in that process of being present. It may seem like nothing's happening. There is a transformation that begins to take place in this process of opening what first begins to happen is our camouflages and our disguises become visible to us. We see them in all the descriptions that start to arise. I am that wonderful term. We see it in all the, the, the ways of being and presenting ourselves that begin to appear. You know, and you really see that change that begins to take place. First days of a retreat, you know, in groups, almost every sentence begins with I am. You know, I'm, ha- I'm, I'm difficult, you know, I, I'm, I'm like this, I'm angry, I'm, you know, I'm resentful, I'm restless, I'm agitated, I'm dull. I mean, you play back a recording of any of the groups and, the, you know, this plays a prominent role. I am. What becomes clear to us is that what is actually emerging are our images about who we are. 
that is what is becoming clear. And we also see how much we become, we have been, and perhaps are, locked into those images and those descriptions. Something else that we see is that the power that those images have is what we give to them in the moment. And we learn a lot about power in this practice. Because we see that the power that our images have to influence us, to mold us, to condition us, to sway us in this moment, is the power that is given to them. Power is given to our images through resistance, through belief, and through clinging, through holding. If none of those dynamics took place in our relationship to our images, our images are completely transparent. But power is given in the moment in the way in which we subscribe to the images that arise. And we must see that this sense of limitation, this sense of being bound to an image, of being locked within a mental state, takes place on a moment-to-moment level. It's a moment-to-moment relationship. That our images, our fears, our anxieties, our insecurities, become powerful in this moment, become our living reality through the way in which we subscribe to them. If we give that power to what we experience inwardly, to our images, our memories, our striving, it is no different from the process that takes place in our lives of giving power. That's important to see. It is no different than the process that takes place in our lives when we give power away to someone or to something else through resistance, through belief, and through holding, all of which is based upon fear. It is so important to see that invisibility is not a life sentence. It is a moment-to-moment experience that is created. What we cling to in this moment, what we hold on to or resist in this very moment, an image or a reaction or a belief, is our next moment's personal history. I wonder if you can understand that. What you resist or hold on to or cling to in this moment, in that process of doing so, you create a personal history which you carry with you into the next moment. And you see the relationship between one moment and another, how this sense of history and how these beliefs deepen through carrying history, through clinging, and through holding. If we can see the process of doing that, it is one of the most important insights we can come to in this practice, that we create our history on a moment-to-moment level. If we can see that, that's so liberating. Because whatever we create, we don't also don't have to create. 
whatever is created can be dissolved. There's no life sentence. There's no punishment. There's no, no real confinement. Whatever is created can dissolve. Whatever we create through a process in terms of personal history, we can also have the clarity not to create. And what does it mean in our lives not to have a personal history? What does it mean in our lives not to have any definitions, any descriptions which are based upon past experience? Past experience which has chronologically finished, which has given life in the present moment through the power of our holding and through the power of our fear. What does it mean to have no personal history? Not to erase it, not to negate it, not to not be able to learn from it, but not to be a prisoner of it. I mean, what would it mean if we could see ourselves with total freshness and total openness in this moment? What difference would that make in our lives? What difference would that make in the way in which we relate to ourselves and others? It's not a question. We don't have to undo the past. This is also a great relief. We don't have to erase the past. We don't have to backtrack to everything that has happened to us in our lives. We don't have to backtrack to all the things that have wounded us and hurt us. We cannot change what is already finished. Our possibility for transformation can only lie in one place and in one moment, and it is this moment. We cannot relive and remodify what is already finished. Our possibility for transformation doesn't lie in the future, because to think in that way means this assumption that we're going to carry this personal history with us. Our possibility for transformation can lie nowhere apart from this moment that we're actually in through the cessation of clinging. We don't have to undo the past. We don't have to compensate for it through trying to become someone or something else. This is again an expression of belief in personal history. We look at our images. We don't like what we see. So we set up this model of what we would like to become. You know, a spiritual person a nice person, you know, a courageous person. And how much do we beat ourselves with those models? And what do they actually have to do with transformation? You see how quickly transformation happens. You see it here. Have you seen how in the space of, of, a, mo of a minute, less, 30 seconds, you can move from the heights of heaven to the depths of hell? <laughs> Time has nothing to do with that transformation. You can also see how you can move in a moment from a state of being totally contracted and heavy and anxious. You know, you're dragging through the building like death is waiting around the corner. You go around the corner, you suddenly feel so open, you know, and so light and so spacious. Time had nothing to do with that transformation. And do we question where those transformations actually come from? Where, what brings about those transformations? It's not because we've worked something out. It's not because of time. It's not because we've overcome something. 
usually the transformation has to do with letting go, with a cessation of clinging. In that moment of letting go, we are not a victim of our fears and we don't describe ourselves by our images. We learn to listen more and more deeply inwardly. And it's true that as first as we listen inwardly, we hear so many voices and we don't know what's true and what's not true. We don't know when we're listening to our kindergarten teacher, our mother, our worst enemy when we start listening inwardly. But if you keep listening, the clamor begins to quiet. The clamor of those voices begins to fade away and to become more transparent. You begin to be able to listen with awareness and with wisdom in a way in which you're not conditioned by what you hear and not pushed and pulled by what you hear. And out of that there is a sense of deepening and clarity and in wisdom. And out of that comes genuine authority, knowing what is true in our hearts, knowing intuitively what is true in our hearts is the source of all authentic authority. It's not something that can ever be given to us, but neither can it ever be taken away from us. What happens in that process of listening is that the images and the, the, sorry, the edges of our images begin to soften and they begin to melt and they begin to open. We begin to have a sense of who we are that is established in awareness and established in this moment. We begin to have our sense of our being that is holding the fluidity of all of these changes and all of these voices. And we see the descriptions and the definitions come up. becomes harder and harder to really believe in them. You know, once uh, someone who d decided to do a long retreat and then went back to her work, and the first thing she had to do was go to this conference. And everybody in the conference had to wear this label saying who they were. You know, hi, I'm so-and-so, and my job is this. And she got this label uh, blank, and she found herself going to the bathroom and sitting down and crying. She couldn't think what to put on this label anymore. <laughs> it wasn't that she was disempowered or ineffective, but nothing served anymore. Simply nothing served anymore. It felt so unreal. They weren't tears of suffering, they were tears of joy, I might say. <laughs> nothing serves anymore to have that kind of, these limited little descriptions. I am this. What does that mean to ourselves and what does that mean to our world? We discover a qualitatively different dimension of visibility. You know, when we feel locked into invisibility, it's so easy to look with envy upon others. You know, we see these people sit around giving talks, you know, and these people who march through the world seeming with such confidence and assurance, and they, they speak with such conviction. And sometimes when we feel very invisible and afraid, we look at these people with a sense of wonder, thinking, how do they do it? <laughs> You know, what, what is the kind of secret <coughs> formula? How do they do it? But sometimes when we look a little closer, 
You see, sometimes just making a lot of noise is a way of covering up fear. You know, and it's not that kind of visibility we're seeking for, being able to parade to the world, you know, with assurance and conviction that everyone should become a speaker. And that is not what visibility is about. It is about discovering a different quality. Well, we don't cling to notions of what I am, nor are we intent on becoming something for reasons of gaining for security, nor are we intent of establishing credentials for being alive and for being present in the world, and neither do we feel compelled to be invisible. Learning to be visible inwardly, learning to listen and to trust, is learning what it actually means to be established in awareness. Learning what it means to have your home in being awake. Learning what difference that actually makes in your life. Learning how that authorizes you to express the truths you understand because you don't need approval and you don't fear disapproval. Being established in that trust of inner wakefulness <clears throat> means that we can articulate and express and respond with integrity in our world. We can listen to the expectations of others, but we don't feel any need to conform to them. And so we divest those expectations of power and of authority. When you don't feel the need to conform to them, they have no authority over your life. We can be receptive, but we can also act with great effectiveness because we know what it means actually to respond from a place of unshakable trust inwardly. And then we don't react anymore. We know what it actually means to respond. We have the courage of trusting in our own presence and then we can give, we can serve, we can offer without needing to be noticed, without expectation of return because the absence of return doesn't diminish in any way the richness of our own presence. We feel comfortable in silence because we are not deafened inwardly and when we listen what we hear is the melody of utter oneness. What we hear inwardly is the song of utter richness, the richness of being awake and the richness of being present. Learning to be established in awareness. Learning to find our home in being awake without holding on even to being awake without even holding on to awareness, without even constructing any new notion of I'm awake or I'm aware, simply knowing that quality of oneness and attunement with wakefulness is where we find trust, where we find genuine authority, where we find an authentic sense of vision of who we are. It's also where we find freedom. May all beings learn to listen inwardly. 
May all beings live with vision. May all beings live with freedom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.